the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, this morning I want to start by telling you something that you may already know. And that is that you and I and all of us as society have been told a lie. We've been sold something and taught to believe something from the day we were born that is completely untrue. It sounds right, it sounds good, it echoes even words from the Bible, but it is an outright deception straight from the pit. And that is society's definition of love. Society would tell you that you can fall in love and you can fall out, and if you fall out, there's nothing you can do. Society would tell you that it's not a choice, it is an emotion, and you can't control your emotions. Society would tell you that if you truly love someone, and if he or she loves you back, then your marriage should look exactly like what they depict in Hollywood. It's simply not true. And praise God that God Himself does not love us with a flippant, only emotional love, with a love that we receive and think maybe He'll just fall out of love with us. Maybe we will lose our salvation. Maybe He will forget. Maybe He will let us go. No, He doesn't love us the way the world defines it. And for our benefit, He has been very clear on what love is. How He loves us, how we are to love Him, how we are to love each other, how we are to love the world. You see, we find ourselves in a study of spiritual gifts. And the reason Paul comes to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this great and powerful chapter on love, is because he's telling the Corinthians, this is what you are supposed to do. This is how you are to serve. This is how you are to practice your spiritual gifts. Loving others, building up the body, edifying others, not just loving yourself and your own ego, which is what they were doing. They were misusing these gifts at the time, miraculous sign gifts, to bring glory to themselves. And some would even say, for example, with the gift of tongues, it's enough that I am edified, I am encouraged. And Paul says, that's not love. Love is about other people. And so he goes into this wonderful discourse that many of us are familiar with. Many of you had read at your weddings, even when before you were a believer. If you were married as a non-Christian, you might have had this passage read at your wedding. And he tells us what true love is. It's not about pride. It's not about causing arguments. It's not about focusing on yourself. It is about other people. You see, the Corinthians knew what to say. They had their doctrine right. They had sound theology, but their hearts were not in the right place. And so the way that they exercised their gifts, the way that they taught, the way that they lived out their doctrine and theology straight from the Apostle Paul, the early church, was unloving. It was an offense to God. It was worthless. And so Paul, in the context of utilizing spiritual gifts, in the context of service, in the context of how we are to interact in the local church, he addresses their lack of love. The love that he speaks of here is a Greek word called agape. I say that only because you've probably heard it before. There are other words for love, there are other words for, for love in the Scriptures. Greek and Hebrew words that are translated to the English word love. But this particular love is agape love. You have probably heard it said before that agape love is unconditional. We say it's unconditional love, and that is true. That is a defining characteristic of true biblical agape love. It is unconditional. What does that mean? We know what that means in principle, but what does that truly mean? 
It is unconditional in that it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. It has nothing to do with your feelings. Your feelings may change because of that love, but what I'm saying is you don't love only when you feel like it. You don't stop loving because you've had a rough day. It is unconditional. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are, including your feelings. It's unconditional in the sense that it does not matter if the person you are loving loves you back. Friends, it doesn't even matter if that person does not want your love. You love them. When could you love someone that they don't want your love? Sharing the gospel with an unbeliever? Confronting a believer on their sin? They may not want it, but you show it because you love them. It doesn't matter if it's accepted. It doesn't matter if they reject it. It doesn't matter if they punch you in the face and say, get away. You try again and you say, I'm sorry, I love you. I will not stop. It's unconditional. It does not matter how you feel, how the other person feels. It doesn't matter what they're going through. It doesn't matter what you're going through. It cuts through all of that. But there is a second defining characteristic of agape biblical love. And again, this is the love that we are called to love God with. It is the kind of love that God loves us with. It is the word used when it says that God so loved the world, unconditional love. There's a second aspect that we often forget. It is unconditional, yes, but it is also secondly volitional. It is a choice. You choose who to love. And despite what the world may tell you, you can control your love. I'm not saying it's always easy. There are people and there are circumstances and there are times in your life, seasons, where it is easier to love and there are times when it is harder to love. There are people that it's easy to love. There are people that it is very difficult to love. In fact, we struggle to not hate them. But it is a choice. It's not a feeling. It's not an uncontrolled emotion. To say that, well, it's just not going to work out because we just fell out of love. If you want to rephrase that in biblical speak, that is to say you have chosen not to love them because it just got too hard. Because this other person gives you back more. You don't fall out of love. You choose not to love. In fact, I would submit to you this morning that to say that love is a feeling or an emotion that cannot be mastered by the mind and heart of the believer is to undermine the two greatest commandments in the entirety of Scripture. Let me put that another way. If you say you have no control over your love, that it is just an emotion, you fall in, you fall out, you do whatever you do, you, the rom-coms are right, then not only are you saying that God is a liar, you are saying the foundation of what he says that everything is based on is simply not true. Because we read in the Gospels that a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, Lord, Tell me the one greatest commandment in all of Scripture. And what did he say? Number one, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's interesting to me that he didn't ask for a second, but he gave him a second because it's very important. He says also love your neighbor as yourself, as yourself. That's agape love. You say, well, I, you know, I, I struggle. I, I'm, I'm constantly depressed. I hate myself. So is that how I'm love? You know, I, I don't care about myself. I dislike myself. No, you don't. The very fact that you are focused on yourself to the point that you want to abuse your own body or whatever it is, is indication of how much you are obsessed with yourself and love yourself. We are to love others as we love yourself. And even if that doesn't resonate with you, you understand what God is saying there. Mankind loves himself or herself, maximally. And we are to love others, our neighbor, maximally. It's not in the passage, but who is our neighbor? To give you a framework for what we're about to look at in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, who is your neighbor? 
It is not just those in church. It's not just your family. It's not just believers. It's anyone you come in contact with. And God is very clear when he was in his earthly ministry about that, even loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. So this is not limited, what we're about to look at, to those that we are comfortable with, those to whom we find it easy to love. It is your obnoxious neighbor. It is your unscrupulous boss. It is everybody. It is those that the world even says you have every right to hate. We're to love them. But let's jump in to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I want to give you this morning two features of biblical love, very simple. We're looking at verses 1 through 7 of 1 Corinthians 13. We have been going verse by verse through the epistle of 1 Corinthians. And our outline this morning is the contrast of love in verses 1 through 3 and the character of love, verses 4 through 7. For the sake of time, because it's a long passage and I wanted to get this all in one sermon because of the importance of it, We'll read the passage as we go along. The contrast of love, verses 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. Paul writes, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noising gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. We know from our study that the Corinthians really were bragging about and showing off specifically the gift of tongues to be able to speak in another language that they had not learned before. And so Paul begins by hitting them where they're at. He has already made clear and will continue to do so that he considers them, uh, the gift of tongues, the lowest of the gifts, despite the Corinthians thinking it is the best. They thought it was the best because it was easy to show off and bring attention to themselves. We also saw that the gift of tongues was unique to that time period, but the principle that we're going to learn here still applies to us today. They're bragging about their spiritual gifts, their service of tongues, Again, speaking in a language, a human language that they had not learned before. And Paul uses hyperbole. He says, if I could speak in every tongue known to man, even ones that we in this location speaking to the Corinthians have never heard of. We know that there's other people groups and lands out there. If I could speak to all of them. And then he uses hyperbole and says, even if I were to speak in the tongues of angels, where there's no indication in Scripture that anyone can speak in the tongues of angels or even that angels speak in a different tongue. He's just using hyperbole. He's saying, even if I had the best, that I could communicate with the angels even, but I don't do it out of love. Again, he's hitting the Corinthians where they're at. He says, I'm just like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What does that mean? I'm just annoying. You can't hear the miraculous use of that language over the clashing of the symbols. You cannot see the grace of God and the gift of God because you're too preoccupied with the noisy gong. You're just obnoxious. It's annoying. It's not neutral. It's not just, I have no use in this church. It's goes beyond the neutral to the negative. It bothers people. Get out of here. What are you doing? This doesn't make any sense. It is worthless. Think about what he's saying here. He's not saying if I take two symbols and clash it together. He's saying if I speak in the tongues of men and angels miraculously, powerfully, but without love I am worthless. Imagine how much Paul would be admired. Imagine, especially in Corinth, where they're bragging about tongues. They'd be jealous. They would say, this is the guy. He's the man. Look at this. Do it again, Paul. Switch a language. Switch a language. One sentence, five different languages, fluently, perfectly, and yet without love, it's nothing. It's worthless. 
And here are the Corinthians using these languages to puff themselves up. And I said that the principle still applies to us today and you can see it. You can see it in how we are so often tempted to puff ourselves up, bring glory to ourselves and attention to ourselves through our ministries. And here is a warning. Without love, you are just obnoxious. This is not limited to tongues. And he goes on and tells us. He says, even if I had prophecy, speaking directly from and for God, he moves from the lowest of the gifts to the highest, the most valued. And he says, if I know all mysteries, he says in verse 2, if I knew everything that was unrevealed about God, everything that was to come, it's thousands of years later, and these nations don't even exist. They don't have names, but I will tell you what nations Revelation is talking about. In fact, there are things that are incomprehensible to the human mind this side of heaven and possibly even to the glorified mind on the other side of heaven. For example, how we don't serve three gods, but one in three persons. And Paul says, but I get it. God's given me that gift. It told, makes total sense to me. I don't get how I didn't understand this before. Why don't you guys get this? Why is it confusing to you that Jesus Christ is not 200% but 100% God and 100% human? It makes full sense to me. I don't see how you don't understand it because I have all, I know all mysteries and then all knowledge. Again, understanding all things about God. And then he goes on and makes it very practical and says, I have the faith to remove mountains. Man, I like to ski, but that drive, boom, gone. I'm there in Tahoe. Straight path, no hills, no winding roads, just there. Oh, was that mountain in your way? Let me cut down your travel, sir, by three days. Gone. Or just lift the city and bring it to you. Could you imagine seeing someone do this? And he says, without love, it makes him nothing. It makes him worthless. Not just someone outside the church, not just someone who's, again, neutral. You are worthless. And we have to understand that what he's talking about is in the eyes of God and for his own spiritual profit. Because a man like this today would be the first trillionaire to be able to do those things and to do those things selfishly as the Corinthians were doing, to move things, to say, oh, you, you're going to build that bridge? Golden Gate Bridge is crumbling. You need to build another one. It's going to cost the, the state $40 million. Eh, I'll do it for 20 and I'll have it done by tomorrow night. Eh, you want it done in the next 30 seconds? I can do that too. This guy would be the most powerful, the most influential, the richest man ever in the history of the world, and yet, without love, according to God, he is worthless. We can see what this means. Someone who serves in the church, but only for the sake of personal reputation, not out of love for other people. He may do what he does very well, he may have a church, an audience of thousands. He may be sought after to be a consultant to help other churches to get their act together, to help them administrate, to get their finances in order, how to train their ushers, how to train their children's ministers. He knows his theology. This isn't wrong theology. He knows it. He knows the Scriptures. But he only uses it to show off. He only uses it to condemn rather than encourage and to grow. And he may even have helped other churches, but what Paul is saying is for himself. Yeah, what I did, my consulting may have grown that church who is doing, they're doing things with the right heart, but my heart was wrong. And so even though there was benefit for another person, I am still worthless. That act was worthless in the eyes of God. I am like a man walking around, just going into that meeting, banging pots. You'd see this guy, and if you knew his heart, you wouldn't say, disciple me. You'd, you'd run away. You'd say, oh, grab the pastor. Here, he just parked his car. 
He's coming again. But he's written ten books. He's highly sought after. Everyone tells us to hire him, but now if you look at his heart, he's just banging pots. It doesn't matter how well you teach the kids, how well you administrate, how well you lead, how well you feed the poor, whatever it is. doesn't matter how well I preach. doesn't matter how much you guys go away and say, oh, I've been blessed by the preaching of Roger because if I'm not doing it out of a love for you, to me it is worthless. And to God it is worthless. Verse 3, even more practical. Even if he gives everything to feed the poor, he sells everything he has to feed the poor. You would admire someone like that today. You would shudder if I implied that we should do that. You wouldn't want to do that. Well, maybe I could cut this out and this dinner and this vacation, but just I still need two cars because my wife has the kids and I got to go to work. And, you know, okay, well, maybe I can take, ooh, maybe I can take the bus, but we need this. But selling everything to feed the poor. And then he says, if I were to deliver my body to endure the most painful death known to man, as scientists and medical professionals will tell you, being burned alive is the most painful thing for some virtuous cause, not just for whatever. If someone said, if you are willing to be burned at the stake, then we will free all of these slaves or we will give all of these, we give all these homeless houses up in Los Altos and Hillsborough Hills. They'll have mansions tax-free if you just burn yourself. And he says, if I were to do that, but not out of love, it's worthless. He says, it profits me nothing. Now understand, it would profit the poor if he sold everything to give to the poor. In my examples, it would profit the homeless. It would profit the enslaved, but He says, it profits me nothing. It is of no benefit to me. Yes, it has benefit for others. But as for me and the Lord, it is worthless. Nothing will be gained from God. Nothing will be gained for God. When I die, it will not be there in my pile of riches for what I have done on earth Because it's not what we do, it's what we do and how we do it. And how we do it is to be out of love. Love for God, firstly, but also love for other people. It is in Matthew 9 and then again in Matthew 12, Christ says, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. This is how it's been. Yes, He gave those, all those regulations for offering sacrifices, but He says, I want your heart. Even David, after his horrible, horrible sin, in Psalm 51 says this, I know, I would offer sacrifices if you would accept them, but that's not what you want. You want a repentant and a contrite heart. You want my heart. You want love. You want me to show and admit and repent of the fact that I did not indeed biblically love Bathsheba or her husband that I had killed. That's what God wants. And when Christ says those in Matthew, He's rebuking the Pharisees and saying that what is important are the moral requirements of the law, not the physical requirements of the law. Now obviously, if you're pursuing the moral requirements of the law, then you will pursue the physical requirements of the law. The moral being ultimately love and purity and repentance and things like that. Here we're talking about love. So you can't say, well, I'm going to fulfill the greatest commandment, which is to love God and to love others as myself, but I'm not going to serve. That's impossible. I don't think someone who truly, I know someone who truly loves like that, you could not keep them from serving. They're connected. The danger is you can serve and do all this stuff for other people in the church, outside the church, in your community, and not love them one bit. Grumbling upset, trying to show them up, just wanting to heap burning coals on their head, to show them how great you are, that you're the bigger man, you're the better woman. 
And God says, prophets, you're nothing to do that. The bottom line, no matter what you do without love, it is worthless. This is not saying, well, yeah, I struggle with loving people, so I should stop serving. No, it's saying start loving and then serve better. Serve more, serve deeper. Because what we see on the outside is not a measure of its worth. What matters is the criteria of God. Again, not how well you do things, not how big you do things, not how much sacrifice, time, money, energy. His ultimate criteria is love. And then love is going to bleed into and motivate all of those other things. Understand that this is not, what Paul is talking about here is, a, is not loving specific people. He's not saying you need to love those three people. He's not even specifically saying you need to love everyone in the church, Corinth. What he is primarily saying is you need to have the characteristic of love. Then the battle of, yeah, I, I love well, I feel like I'm, by God's grace I'm loving, but they're just those few people. I have trouble loving. Well, that's because you haven't focused on the overarching characteristic of love, and then it doesn't matter who comes in your life, who God puts in your life, who God brings to our church, who banging on the ceiling on your apartment upstairs or whatever it is that's annoying and bothers you before. It's the characteristic of love. And then you don't need to pick and choose who to love and who to work on. You just love. But that begs the question, what does love look like? What is biblical love? That brings us to our second feature of love, the character of love. You've heard it before. Love is patient. Love is kind. And that's generally as much as we can remember. But there's actually 13 more. 15 descriptions of biblical love. So what that means is, just pursuing some of these does not make you love. Love includes all of these. But as we go through these, if you say, well, I'm, yeah, I can do that, I can do that, but yeah, I really uh, have trouble being kind or being patient, well, that's something to work on so that your love is more on par with what God desires and what God has empowered you to do. Because frankly, what we're about to see is humanly impossible without the Holy Spirit. Humanly impossible without God's strength. And so what I like to do is tell people this is a test of sorts. A 15-question test of whether your love is worthy of the name of Christ or, as we just saw, worthless. And I'm going to just jump in and go through all 15 of these. And I don't want to tell, say that, you know, if you're weak in some area or you struggle in an area that, that you just throw in the towel that you don't love. We are all works in progress. We need to strive for excellence. We need to strive to be Christ-like. And so mark down where you're weak in. Mark down where you need to grow in because we need to have all 15 to truly Love. First, love is patient. This literally means long-suffering or long-tempered. It simply means how we say it is slow to anger. You don't get mad easily. You don't fly off the handle. Uh, The picture here in this Greek word is having a long fuse. Right? You you picture that? Those of you who... you know, have, have seen the old school TNT or had firecrackers growing up, right? If it's a big firecracker, if it's like an M80 that could blow your hand off, you want a longer fuse before that thing blows up so you can run away. It's that idea. It takes a lot to get you to lose your temper. It's a common word in the New Testament, and it is used, this is important, almost exclusively of being patient with people rather than circumstances, So it's not so much being patient with your traffic, although your impatience is often directed at a certain person you see on the road, right? So you could say, well, it's not the situation that I'm sitting here in the waiting room, but you are losing patience with the doctor or his 
administrative assistant or whatever it is. So it's being impatient with people. But more to the point, it's, it's not so much what we think of as patience. It is partially where you just like, okay, I can wait there. You know, okay, they're late. I'll just wait. But we're talking about not getting angry quickly or easily. And more to the point, true love says that you are willing to not just wait because someone's late, but to actually be taken advantage of, to be offended, to be hurt emotionally or even physically without getting angry, turning the other cheek, for example. No matter how poorly you are treated, you don't get angry, you don't get bitter, you don't get resentful, even if everything in your being and everyone around you says they deserve it, let loose on them, you don't do it. You're just patient. And so the question for you this morning is do you fly off the handle or are you patient with people? And I will warn you right now, as we go through these 15 characteristics, the more you love, the more you sacrifice, the more you are selfless, the less people will treat you the way you are treating them. And that's why we need to master patience. Number two, kind. Love is kind. As patience is willing to take anything from others, kindness is willing and will give anything to others. It does good to others. It's, it's the idea of being useful, serving, gracious. This is more than just, oh, that's great. I wish him well. This is more than just warm, fuzzy feelings and hopeful wishes for somebody. It is wishing the best or desiring someone else's welfare and then going and doing something about it. Not just, I hope you get better. What can you do to make him better? I hope you get some more sleep tonight. What can you do so that they will get sleep tonight? Oh, I hope that works out for you. What can you do to make sure it works out for them? You don't have control over certain things like what their boss will decide about their promotion, but this is the idea is it's not just saying, oh, I feel bad for him. Do something. We have demoted the word kind to just how people speak. Oh, he's so nice. He always has a kind word. That's not what this is talking about. It's talking about proactively, physically doing something to help benefit others' welfare. Number three, love is not jealous. The word jealous has the root word to have a strong desire. It's the word zelao. Sounds like zeal. That's actually where we get the word zeal. Passion, a strong desire. Love is not jealous. Let me make this practical for you. Love finds joy and happiness when they see others who are successful, others who are talented, others who are popular, others who are good looking. And don't resent them. They're not jealous about it. But let me, even more to the point, give this to you. Love is happy. Love is joyful. Happy for other people. Praising God. When you see someone more successful, more talented, more popular, better looking than you are. Rather than trying to bring them down in conversations. You're not jealous. You just love. Look, it's not wrong to see other people and say, Ah, oh, I wish I had a prayer life like them. Ah, oh, I wish I had a, a marriage like theirs. That's okay to strive to be better as long as what you're striving after for and seeing other people is Christ-likeness. But it's wrong to be jealous of others. And you know what that means. Resentful, bitter, it affects your mood. It makes you pursue things for the wrong reasons. You ever been in a conversation where someone's just, there's a group and they're just talking about how great someone else is or they're talking about someone, you know, he just got a promotion or, or something great and, and that, that, that jealousy creeps in, right? It happens to all of us. And you, you want to say something about yourself or even worse, say something negative about that person. Well, yeah, you don't know. You, you weren't really there. It didn't happen that way. Other people helped him. You know, it's jealousy. Instead of saying, yeah, praise God. That's so great for him. 
But even then, you might want to check the jealousy of your heart if that ends with that conversation and it just burns, it kills you to have to say it to that actual person. Hey, I heard about this. I'm so happy for you. It's one thing to say good things behind someone's back. It's another to say it to their face because, well, we're jealous. Jealousy leads to envy and strife between you and others. And even worse, it leads to discontentment between you and God. Jealousy says, I wish, I wish, I wish, instead of thank God, thank God, praise God for what you have and who you are. Number four, very close. You see a lot of these have to do with pride. Number four, love does not brag. The word brag in the Greek literally means to be a windbag, to be full of hot air. Bragging is talking in a conceited way. It's boasting. We know what bragging is. Origen called it intellectual pride. Cicero called it rhetorical display. It's any speech that builds yourself up. It is showing off. These days, especially in the church, we have more of what the kids these days call the humble brag, right? But here's the key. Especially for the Christian, when we attach God's grace in it, we don't know if they're bragging. They may just be praising God. And then again, if we're struggling with jealousy, we'll say, oh, you're just bragging. See, the thing with bragging, the issue is not what you brag about. It's not the content of your words. Again, it's the heart. It's why you're saying what you're saying. Are you truly just blown away by God's provision and grace? Or are you just saying, praise God, so that people don't recognize you're just building yourself up? It's not for us listening to judge. If they say praise God, hey, we praise God with them, or if they're truly in their hearts not praising God, we praise God outside of them. But what matters is those who are saying those things, it's a matter of the heart. You can say the exact same things, and you can be bragging, or with the exact same sentence, you could be humbly praising God. It's a matter of your love. It's a matter of the heart. Love does not brag. Fifthly, love is not arrogant, literally puffed up, proud. People with the egos so big they can't even fit into the door. We know what this is. I don't need to talk about this much. But to be very practical, this is the person who sits here this morning and says, I don't need to hear this. I'm fine. I'm good at this. I'm untouchable. Don't tell me I need to love more. Don't tell me what to do. They need to hear it. I don't. You know, arrogance is such a horrible sin in the Christian's life because it doesn't truly appreciate, understand, and accept that everything we have comes from God. Your promotion, your money, your education, the invention of taurine and caffeine that got you through those all-nighters. It was in God's sovereignty that you were even born in the United States of America instead of somewhere else where your parents were born. Or you immigrated here as a child or even as an adult. That's all from God. Yes, you worked hard. Yes, you studied hard. Yes, you were, had the door proverbially slammed in your face, interview after interview, and did all the footwork. Not denying that. But the proud needs to understand that all of those things, even the opportunities, come from God. That's why these, these sins of pride are so horrible in the Christian life and are contradictory to true biblical love. Number six, love does not act unbecomingly. Someone who acts unbecomingly is someone who's rude. Someone who has no tact. Biblically speaking, we need to be careful. The culture is always changing. We need to stick with Scripture and what God sees as right or wrong and never waver, never budge on those things. But you understand, you can be very tactless and, and not be rude and has nothing to do with your faith or your doctrine. 
You see, to a healthy and biblical degree, love is concerned about others' feelings so that they are not rude. They understand that this person needs to be confronted, but they do it in a loving way. Not just speaking the truth, but speaking the truth in love. They wouldn't do anything or say anything that would cause anyone to blush. Now that's very subjective. Some people blush at everything, but you understand what I'm saying. This, sometimes this simply means having manners, to be sensitive to others, to ask questions. How do we do this? What is, or where would you like me to sit? Thank you for having me for dinner. Watching what your hosts do before you just grab things off the table. This is something that was really uh, just ingrained in me on the mission field. You know, we Americans like to think that our culture, everyone should adopt our culture and our language. Uh, I get embarrassed. I get ashamed when I'm in a foreign country and loud American, always loud, always loud. You go to European restaurant, you always know who the Americans are. They are loud. And it's rude. They also all have backpacks. And so... And they're wearing shorts in cultures where only children wear shorts. So you go there and, you know, they demand, oh, where's the, where's the English? Where's the English menu? Do you have an English menu? You're in Italy. They speak Italian. Point at something and eat it or be happy and leave. We do this, Right? We think, well, this is what makes me comfortable. This is what we do at home, so this must be what we do. This is how I talk to them. This is how I treat my kids. This is how I, treat this. I should treat their kids. And it has nothing to do with Scripture. You're just rude. We need to learn. Watch and observe and ask questions and learn. There are so many different cultures represented even in this room. There's no place for saying, well, I'm a Christian. Manners are just a secular uh, thing created by society. We don't need to have manners. Look at John the Baptist. He's rude. I invite you, please, go all the way. Locusts, honey, camel's hair coat, very comfortable. Unless you're going to do that, and unless God has called you to be a prophet, act becomingly. This isn't about going out and buying a book on manners, although some of you gentlemen might do well to do that. Again, this is not to look good in front of others so people will think, oh, what a pleasant person. It is out of love and a concern for other people. Number seven, love does not seek its own. This is a fancy way of saying love is not selfish. That's what selfishness is, right? Seeking one's own. This is not just about the super egotistical people that think the world revolves around them. It's little things that you do on a daily basis where you're more concerned about your own comfort, your own well-being than you are about others. And this is even just saying, well, as a dad, I sacrifice a lot for my wife and kids. Wonderful. Do that out of love. Do that for God's glory. But even saying, well, for the sake of my family's comfort... I'm going to reject everything else and service and helping other people. That's selfishness too. One commentator, well-known commentator, R.C.H. Lenski said this, Selfishness lies at the root of a thousand evils and sins in the world and in the church. Between rich and poor, capital and labor, nation and nation, man and man, church member and church member. Cure selfishness, he writes, and you plant a garden of Eden. It's Philippians 2.4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That passage also says that we are to consider everyone else individually as more important than ourselves. And that is to impact not just walking in and saying, well, I'm not in leadership. I'm not as important as that guy. No, it is to impact everything you do, all of your thinking. Where do you park? 
Do you park in the same place you would if there were signs that said reserved for the important people? CEO, manager, clients only? It's a small example. We can, we can play this out in a million different ways. I'm not saying you need to do this. But, but one of the reasons I personally like to respond to emails and text so quickly is because I don't want to wait for you. How dare I make you wait for me? And again, that's not Scripture. You don't have to do that. But it's just something to say. You don't seek your own. You treat other as more, others as more important than yourself. Out of love. Number eight, love is not provoked. It's similar to patient. Provoked means aroused to anger. Provoked to anger. If we truly love, we won't get angry or bitter when we are wronged. Or, let's be honest, is more often the case when we think we're wronged. Those who are selfish will be easily provoked. You say, well, I just have thin skin. That's how I'm wired. That's okay. Just don't get mad. You don't have to get mad about it. Don't hold a grudge. Don't say they're a bad person. No matter how selfless you are, again, you will not be treated in the same manner. Paul understood this. The context of this very epistle, loving the Corinthians selflessly despite their unfaithfulness to him and his teaching and his apostleship. Number nine, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Taking into account, she said that sounds like a bookkeeping term. It actually is in the Greek. This is saying that if you truly love, you don't have a debit and credit column in your relationships. You know what I'm saying? Those old bookkeeping, you know, you used to do that on paper. Even your apps do this now. Excel does this. If there's a debt, if there's a debit, it's in red or in parentheses. If not, we're in the black, right? That's what people say. Companies in the black this year. That's good. And we do that. We remember things and we put them in the debit column and they stay there forever or they have to do something to get back in the credit column or off your list altogether. Holding grudges. Love is forgiving. Not storing up resentment. Not having a chip on your shoulder. Not holding a grudge. Not expecting reparations to get them out of the debit column. When you walk into a church, when you walk into a store, when you walk into your, your Thanksgiving dinner in a few weeks here with your extended family, do you immediately think, ah, I'm not going to talk to them because they still apologize for what they did last year? You think of the ways people have wronged you. You think, oh, that's a guy who does, didn't wave. That's a guy who did this. That's a guy who yelled at my kids. You avoid people altogether. Because once upon a time they said or did something that you didn't like. Listen carefully, friends. Love has amnesia when it comes to being wronged. You forgive and forget. Number 10, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. This simply means that love does not share in the happiness of the successful sinner. Anything that is wrong in the eyes of God grieves the heart that is full of true biblical love. It shouldn't be like, remember, you know, those of you who had siblings, especially close in age, you both did something wrong, but only your sibling got in trouble, and you're like, oh, good. Right? Or they did something wrong, but you didn't, but you're still glad they got in trouble because it makes you look good. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't rejoice when something wrong happens. It's not, you know, I, yeah, I know God hates divorce, but I'm really glad she's out of that marriage. No. You think how God thinks. That's biblical love, not just appealing or appeasing how someone feels. You don't re- rejoice with unrighteousness. And friends, I know you're not going to like this, but this really hits home with your entertainment choices. Celebrity gossip. Oh, yeah, this celebrity got together with this celebrity. I'm so happy for them. Fourth marriage, fifth kid with three different men. Love does not rejoice with unrighteousness. 
But number 11, it rejoices with the truth. It rejoices when you see others' lives correspond to the gospel. This goes back to not being jealous. This goes back to not being selfish. When other people are given a spiritual gift and they're using it, you rejoice with the truth. You see, we live in a culture where we are trained to rejoice when the sins of the world are publicized and people are embarrassed. And we are told that we should be embarrassed when Christians walk in obedience. You don't want to be associated with that group. You don't want to be associated with that street preacher. Oh yeah, I used to attend that church, but man, he said some things during COVID that I don't agree with, so I distanced myself from him. No, we rejoice with the truth. We want to nitpick at Christians and the church rather than rejoicing that they're doing something right. We want to nitpick and say, yeah, it's good preaching and the people are walking with the Lord and growing, but they do this and they do that. And, you know, one time I went and they said there was a new visitor bag and I didn't get one. And the pastor kept emailing me asking for prayer. Just leave me alone. You know, we nitpick instead of as a whole saying, hey, they're doing right. They're doing good. The, the, the truth is being preached. And then we nitpick about little things. Nobody's perfect. No church is perfect. Rejoice with the truth. Are you rejoicing when truth and righteousness prevail even if you don't agree with who they voted for? Even if you don't agree with what they're doing with masks and vaccines? Even if whatever? Rejoice with the truth. Major in the majors and minor in social things. And yes, friends, I include medical realities in social things because frankly, that's what it's become. Twelfth, love bears all things. This is not the idea of having a physical load on your back, but a spiritual or emotional load that you have taken on behalf of someone else. Bears all things has the idea of covering, protecting, protecting others from physical harm, but also emotional harm, spiritual harm, protecting them from ridicule, ridicule, gossip, exposure. It's not gossiping. It's not listening to gossip. When someone hears about difficulties in someone's marriage at church, say, stop. I don't want to hear it, and you need to stop. I don't want to know. That's love. That's protecting. Thirteen, love believes all things. The word believe, the root Greek word is faith. Not that it believes everything it hears about someone. It's not someone who's just foolish, gullible. That's not what it means. But it also means it's not someone who's always cynical or suspicious. Believes all things means it gives people the benefit of the doubt. To put it in another way, it does not give in to suspicions of doubt. When someone says things and you want to think, hmm, doesn't sound right, doesn't sound like he, I, don't, I know that guy, he can't be that spiritual, he can't be doing things. You, no, you give the benefit of the doubt. It believes all things. And when something just seems amiss, you don't jump to conclusions. You trust that the motives of others are pure. Oh yeah, he's just lazy. That's why he always walks in the church late. Why do you jump there? Why do you jump to that? You might, you, want, you might want to consider that if you can think something of someone else it's because you yourself have probably done it. So you just assume everyone else is like you. That is the epitome of pride, by the way. To gauge everything else by your own personal experience. Give the benefit of the doubt. And when sin has occurred, verifiably, it still has faith that repentance will be the end result. Because all of this is rooted in God. 14 is similar, hopes all things. When all your confidence and faith in an individual is shattered, you still hope, you still expect the best, not in him being able to pull himself up by his bootstraps, but in the gracious, wonderful mercy and power of God. Hoping in other people in love is hoping in God. There is no pessimism in hope. Not blind optimism, but understanding the grace of God. Expecting grace to conquer in the end. It's love. You do this. 
You do this with your closest loved ones, your spouse, your children. You hope, even when everyone else says this is not going to happen. It is an academic, it is a scientific, it is a medical impossibility. You still say, well, I still hope. And we are to do that too on people's emotional and spiritual lives. Fifteen, finally, endures all things. This is a great one to end with. The word endures is a military term back in Paul's day. And you understand that the military was very different back then. You had people with spears and swords. It was hand-to-hand combat. And you had people who would stand at the top of a wall and would alert the people inside when the army was coming, not just one person, but hundreds if not thousands of soldiers. And he didn't say, they're coming, and then run. He stood there. He stood his ground at all costs. That's what endures means. Love endures all things. It holds its ground no matter the cost to you. Patiently waits amidst the persecution of enemies and the ingratitude of friends. Because nothing can make true love cease. And that is why, going back to the beginning, it is so important that we pray for, then pursue, and then cultivate the character of love, not just to the ability to love specific individuals. Because only then, no matter who it is, no matter what the situation, no matter what the wrong, the perceived wrong, no matter the sin, no matter the truthful harm that they want to inflict on you, that they have inflicted on you, no matter the words that say, I absolutely hate you and don't want you here anymore, love endures all things. It doesn't say love can take it. He's tough. You're thick-skinned. Love endures. Love stands there. At all costs. Yes, with tears in your eyes. Yes, with a broken heart. Yes, with, 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 with crying and weeping because of what this person is saying to you and doing to you and doing to God. Snot running down your face. Absolutely devastated, but you love and so you endure all things. You stand there. Trembling barely able to stand and slowly, painfully turn the other cheek. Because Christ didn't say, I knew it would be bad. I didn't know it would be this bad. You got one nail in, I'm done. Angels, attack He endured. And He is the ultimate example. It is about the heart. We start with the heart. But it affects everything. As we are told in 1 John 3, 18, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. If you are a Christian this morning, as I told you last week, there is no message that you have or will ever hear me preach that is more important than what I have just shared with you. Because it fulfills the two greatest commandments. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your great example of love, not only one that we can read about and see in our lives, but one that we know that you embody. You don't just fulfill love, you are love. May we examine our own hearts, and I pray that you would teach us and reveal to us where in these 15 characteristics of love we fall short. Teach us how to repent of those things May we love 
and strive to love better, strive to love more biblically and more deeply. And when we have achieved that, may we do even better. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing a little bit as we prepare our hearts for communion. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.